and mission. Check them out at skinonskins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank relies on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year, enough for 93.000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you can help. assassins are already dead. A shadowy group of killers for hire is eliminating world leaders, crime lords, and CIA agents. Inexplicably, the deceased contract killers have the DNA of people who are long dead. CIA agent John Clooney devises a dangerous plan to capture a shadow killer alive, contract a hit on himself. John Wessex, The Shadow Killers, is the second book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Tell us how the life is over in the cradle of 
Existing conditions. I'm a woman. Charlie Parker looks yes, like Buddha. Charlie Parker, The expression that says, all is well. This was what Charlie Parker said when he played, all is well. He had the feeling of early in the morning, like a hermit's joy, or like the perfect cry of some wild gang at a jam session, whale wop. Charlie burst his lungs to reach the speed of what the speedsters wanted, and what they wanted was his eternal slowdown. A great musician and a great creator of forms that ultimately find expression in mores and what have you. Musically as important as Beethoven, yet not regarded as such at all, a genteel conductor of string orchestras in front of which he stood proud and calm, like a leader of music in the great historic world night, and wailed his little saxophone, the alto, with piercing clear lament, in perfect tune and shining harmony, toot, as listeners reacted without showing it, and began talking, and soon the whole joint is rocking and talking, and everybody talking, and Charlie Parker, whistling them on to the brink of eternity with his Irish St. Patrick patoodle stick. And like the holy miss, we blop and we plop in the waters of slaughter and white meat and die one after one in time. And how sweet a story it is when you hear Charlie Parker tell it, either on records or at sessions or at official bits and clubs, shots in the arm for the wallet, Gleefully, he whistled the perfect horn. Anyhow, it made no difference. Charlie Parker, forgive me. Forgive me for not answering your eyes. For not having made an indication of that which you can devise. Charlie Parker, pray for me. Pray for me and everybody. In the nirvanas of your brain where you hide indulgent and huge no longer charlie parker with a secret unsayable name that carries with it merit not to be measured from here to up down east or west charlie parker lay the bane off me and everybody Welcome, everyone, to Labor and Love. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else 
worked for a dollar they didn't get. That's how the rich get richer. And the rest of us get a little poorer every day. Think of all the money. Think of all those billions that Jeff Bezos and the Zuckerbergs and the people at the top, the new money and the old money. Where does all that money come from? It comes from you and me and our work. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. They're sitting down, they're talking about you, and they're talking about your life. Those minutes that will never come back again. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have unions. They want you to go in there by yourself with your hat in your hand and deal one-on-one with the company. Outside forces. Who's outside? People who are down on the, the floor doing the work or the people in the towers who talk about their work and make deals about the results of that work. So this is Labor and Love Radio. Welcome. And we started out definitely with a blues accent this morning. Two of the great blues guitarists. Sister Rosetta Tharp with Rock Me Baby. And right after her, Beverly Guitar Watson, Watkins, pardon me. Beverly Guitar Watkins with another song called Rock Me. And then we finished with a haiku, with with a poem by Jack Kerouac, accompanied by Steve Allen in the background, about Charlie Parker. One of the great jazz, blues players on the the sax. And what have we got for you today? Well, what's going on out there in the world? Russia continues attacking Ukraine. And the rich are getting richer. Approximately 250 American workers died today from job-related causes, so this show, as always, is dedicated to them. So what do we got for you today? Well, we, we started out two stories. We started two stories out. The story of Kurt Flood and the, the reserve clause in baseball and what Kurt Flood and others did to get rid of that reserve clause, which essentially said that a ball player for the rest of his life was controlled by one team. 
And if the team decided to trade him, that ball player, he was a piece of meat. He could be traded. His life could be traded. It could be traded in the case of Kurt Flood from St. Louis, where he had family connections and business, to Philadelphia, a town at that time very hostile towards black ball players. Um, Flood refused to go. Talk some more about that. Jackie Robinson Day was yesterday, and every baseball team in the major leagues, every player wore the number 42. What's that all about? Couldn't tell who the players were. We got Radio Labor coming up. That's our worldwide connection to labor actions all over the world. Whenever you stand up, you're not alone. History is on your side. All over the world, people are standing up. It's incumbent upon us to carry that news, carry that news from the past and the news from the present where there's action to people. Amazon lashes back. Well, of course, what did you expect? There's a new organizing uh, campaign just across the street, I think, from uh, where the successful one was on Staten Island. So we'll see what happens there. Amazon is pulling out all the stops. Why don't they want you to have a union? Why are they willing to spend millions of dollars rather than give a little more back to you? Why, why, why? And of course, it's all about mastery. They want to be your masters. You go in on the job, you give up some of your rights. You don't have the same free speech rights. Maybe you can't even wear what you want. You can certainly be opinionated, but you better not do it on the job, and you better not do it around the company people. How about the five-hour day? Huh? You've heard of the four-hour, the four-day week? How about the five-hour day, a bold proposal? History and labor history in two minutes. Talk about that. But right now, let's listen to Radio Labor, our worldwide labor report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour report recorded on Monday, April 11th, 2022. I'm Mark Boulanger. 
Since the 2014 election of the right-wing government of Narendra Modi in India, the labor movement in the country has been under severe attack. In a recent webinar organized by the Trades Union Congress in the UK, the General Secretary of the TUC, Francis O'Grady, interviewed a prominent Indian labor activist about the situation. Our final speaker, last but definitely not least, is Gautam Modi, who is, uh, I believe uh, you were a a former uh, trade union organiser, officer in a a metalworking factory, and you are now uh, the General Secretary of India's new trade union initiative. This is an initiative, an organization that unites unions and workers from across both the formal and the informal sectors. And I know that you're fresh from a year-long struggle to fight and win for farm workers. So over to you, Gautam. Greetings from India. Greetings from the NTUI. This month will be 70 years when we elected our first government five years after we won independence. That was considered then an extraordinary achievement for a country as poor and as divided as ours. And today we're faced actually with the annihilation of that very democracy we struggled for nearly a century for and have spent 70 years trying to build. We face an attack on every kind of right and basic human rights, so the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of religion, the right to association. In 2019, the far-right Hindu majoritarian BJP came back to government with a complete majority of parliamentary majority of its own. Days after they came back, they virtually wrote down our Minimum Wage Act creating a floor wage below the minimum wage. In September 2020, in the space of four days, four parliamentary days, having expelled virtually all opposition MPs from parliament, the BJP implemented three laws that govern farming in the country, which would effectively disband local farmer markets, pass on the unequivocal right for large corporates to buy farm produce and take over land holdings of middle and small farmers, not just rendering them without their livelihoods, but throwing off farm labor in the tens of millions from those farms. Having done this in the second batch of those two days, they brought in what they call the labor codes on industrial relations, on health and safety, and social security, virtually writing down everything that we had achieved. It's perhaps instructive in our history that we won our right to form trade unions under British rule in 1926. And 100 years down the road, or almost 100 years down the road, we virtually lost our right to form trade unions. Importantly, what we've lost which was the big victory of the decade of the 1920s, both in Britain and here and elsewhere in the world, is the civil immunity from trade union action that we've enjoyed. That's something that's gone out of the window. We've always had a very degraded right to strike. We've lost that completely. Farmers from in and around the hinterland of Delhi, especially the Punjab, 
did stand up and fight. It was a concentrated fight from one region of one community of farmers that was able to build solidarity across the country and bring to bear the solidarity of the working class movement. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was uh, Radio Labor. They have another feature this week. A Nurse's Lullaby. Let's play that one. A Nurse's Lullaby. if we can get it. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger. Picture this. You're in the hospital with COVID-19. Your family is not allowed to visit, and you are not sure you will live through the night. There's only you and a night shift nurse. Here from the Labour CD Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers, is A Nurse's Lullaby.
A Nurse's Lullaby was written by Timothy Sheard and sung by Tracy Garrison Feinberg and Jacob Gould. Sincero, pero donde crece las palmas. Yo soy un hombre sincero, pero donde crece las palmas. Y antes de morir me quiero echar mis versos del alma. Guantanamera, Guajira, Guantanamera. Guantanamera, 
mi verso estino verde claro di te un carmine incendito mi verso estino verde claro di te un carmine incendito mi verso es un siervo herido che busco nel monte amparo Verses were written 90 years ago by Jose Marti. He said, I cultivate a white rose in June and in January for the sincere friend who gives me his hand and for the cruel one who would tear out this heart with which I live. I do not cultivate thistles nor nettles. I cultivate a white rose Cultivo la rosa blanca en junio como enero. Cultivo la rosa blanca en junio como enero. Para el amigo sincero que me da su mano franca. Cruel che me arranca il corazón con che vivo e per cruel che me arranca il corazón con che vivo pardoni ortico cultivo cultivo la rosa blanca Pobres de la tierra, quiero yo me suertechar. Con los pobres de la tierra, quiero yo me suertechar. El arroyo de la sierra me complace más que el mar. That set, uh, we had our uh, <clears throat> radio labor feature about labor actions that are going on all over the world. 
Remember, you're only alone when you don't stand up. So, Radio Labor uh, played that song about the nurse's lullaby. Love to play that song. It, it touches you in a way. It reminds you what a nurse is, a true nurse. And how important nurses and nursing are to all of us. Nurse's lullaby. After that, we took off. We had uh, Joe Glazer singing about automation. That's a song from the 50s. Foreseeing a lot of the problems we're looking at now. Maybe the uh, automated robot or whatever it is does the job faster. They don't take... uh, They don't take breaks. They don't take breaks. They don't go on vacation. They don't. There's all kinds of other stuff they don't do. (laughs) But the worker is someone who's got a family to support. So you take that job away and give it to the machine, the worker and his family and her family because the worker still has to work to subsist. Automation. Brother Charlie Morgan had a song about automated vegetables. And finally, Guantanamera, the the national anthem of people who wanted to get together and unite all over the hemisphere. North and South America, Cuba and America, Guantanamera, Guajira, give me shelter. All right, we talked last week about Cesar Chavez and his movement, the UFW. And I want to play a little video about that, a person who made the difference. And again, uh, we've got a culture culture that glorifies, tends to glorify individuals, especially individual men, as if they were something completely different from the rest of us. And of course, they're not. The regular people, that's what makes all their achievements and those of their followers so important. Here it is, Cesar Chavez, a person who made a difference. For this week's unit, we will be studying about Cesar Chavez, a man who changed the lives of many. He was a man who cared about his fellow people and never gave up on his dreams. We will take a look at his life and how he made a difference, not only for farm workers, but an entire society. Cesar Chavez was born on a small farm near Yuma, Arizona in 1927. 
1938, Cesar Chavez and his family lost their land in Arizona. They were forced to leave their home and move to California to work as migrant farm workers. Migrant farm workers are people who have to travel city to city looking for work in the farms. They follow the harvest of certain fruits and vegetables in order to have a job all year long. Working in the fields was very difficult. The farm growers would demand that the farm workers use a short handle hoe like the one in this picture. By using this tool, the workers would be close to the ground, causing severe back pain. Can you imagine working from 3 in the morning until sunset? Or not having any clean water to drink or a clean bathroom to use during your hard day at work? Well, that's exactly what a lot of farm workers were going through back when Cesar Chavez was growing up. He saw how badly farm workers were being treated every day. After years of working as a farm worker, Cesar Chavez enlisted in the United States Navy for two years. When he came home, he returned to help his family work in the fields. In 1952, Cesar began helping his community. He began working in a service organization who helped Latinos register to vote. He kept chasing his dreams and went on to help farm workers protect their rights. Cesar Chavez saw how farm workers were still not treated fairly. He wanted to help even more. So he decided to start a farm workers union to help protect his fellow people. A union is an organization for workers that helps protect their rights, like working conditions, if they're treated fairly, and how much they get paid. In 1962, the National Workers Association was born. Cesar Chavez became the president of the union and he gave up everything in order to help others. He had hope that the farm workers would get treated fairly. Many farm workers began to join Cesar Chavez. Everyone had the same hope that he did. The workers were very happy to have a leader that was there to support them. As the years went by, the union became stronger. Everyone wanted to stand up for the rights of farm workers. They all worked as a team to try and have farm owners treat their workers fairly. In 1966, Cesar Chavez organized a march from Delano to Sacramento 
In order to get more support from the public, farm workers, but most importantly, the governor. More than 5,000 people joined him on this march. Cesar Chavez's dream of better working conditions for his fellow farm workers came true. The farm growers agreed to sign a labor contract, and for the first time in the United States history, a contract was signed between growers and farm workers. Cesar Chavez kept fighting for the rights of farm workers even after his first victory. Cesar Chavez is an American hero. He was a person that made a difference by following his dreams. He will always be remembered as a man that stood up for justice. Let's take a moment to reflect. How can you be like Cesar Chavez? Will you follow your dreams like he did? Will you stand up for people that are not being treated fairly? Try this strange tense. Okay, that was a, uh, that was a um, feature, a documentary made by a woman, a young woman named Yesenia Miranda. all about the life and times of Cesar Chavez. And let's look at our labor cards, because we do have four labor cards here that have to do with the farm workers' struggle. Labor card number 20, Cesar Chavez. We are not tools or rented slaves. We are men and women. Chavez's family moved from Arizona to California, working wherever they could. As a child, Cesar attended 30 different schools. This was by the time he was in the eighth grade. He family moved around, and so he would be changed from school to school. Later, he drove around California talking to farm workers about forming a union. In 1962, he and Dolores Huerta founded the National Farm Workers Association which later became the UFW. When Filipino workers went on strike in the grape fields in 1965, the NFWA joined them and developed the idea of a boycott of grapes. Big companies agreed to union recognition and wage increases for workers. The UFW also called for a ban on fatal pesticides. Okay, that's Cesar Chavez. Dolores Huerta was born in New Mexico and raised in Stockton, California. He started as a teacher, but realized that I could help farm workers more by becoming an organizer. He worked on voter registration drives with the Community Services Organization and later helped start the United Farm Workers. He worked tirelessly on picket lines and organizing drive. Sometimes at the risk of her life. During the great boycott, it was Huerta who negotiated the contracts when the growers gave in to union and public pressure and settled. In 1997, Huerta was named one of the regents of the University of California still active at the age of 92.
Larry Eat Leon, because it wasn't just Mexican farm workers. The entire struggle that became that cause, you know, the UFW to form and unite was begun by Filipino farm workers. One of their leaders was Larry Itlion. In the late 1920s, thousands of Manongs, single white Filipino workers, came to work in the U.S., where they faced segregation and discriminatory laws. One of them was 15-year-old Larry Itlion. He worked in Alaska in the canneries in Washington State, picking lettuce and tomatoes, and in the big farms in California, organizing workers wherever he went. He founded the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee and in 1965 led a strike of grape pickers. Mexican-American workers joined them and together they formed the United Farm Workers Union, winning union recognition, decent wages, and fair working conditions for many farm workers. And we would be remiss if we didn't remember an organizer from the generation before Chavez, one of the people who inspired people like Cesar Chavez, Ernesto Galarza. Teacher, author, civil rights, and labor leader, Ernesto Galarza moved from Mexico to California when he was eight years old, growing up in Sacramento. He earned a doctorate from Columbia University and later worked in Washington, D.C. on Latin American issues. In 1947, the National Farm Labor Union struck the giant Giorgio Corporation in Arvin, California. Galarza worked as union staff during the strike. In the 1950s, the NFLU struck several more times. He worked for the end of the Bracero program that allowed growers to import and exploit low-wage workers from Mexico. His biography, Barrio Boy, is a classic of Mexican-American literature. I would say, if you want to read about the experience of Chicanos in California, you would read that book, the book called Barrio Boy by uh, Ernesto Galarza. El Cesar Chavez Day is celebrated every year, March 30th. There was a parade and a breakfast celebrating the labor connection with uh, labor leaders and grand poobahs from all over the city. London Breed was there. Um, celebrating the life and work of the UFW. It's so easy to slip into that uh, habit of talking about an entire movement from the point of view of one man. Doesn't work out. So, Feliz Dia de Los Obreros of the Workers, Dia de Cesar Chavez, Feliz Año. 
Feliz cumpleaños, Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers. Amazon lashes back. Let's move up to the present now. This is what's happening in Staten Island warehouses where Amazon workers have been successful in organizing one large, one large place on Staten Island, a vote of uh, 2,500 to 2,100. Here comes round two. This is by Luis Feliz Leon from Labor Notes. Amazon's battalion of unscrupulous union busters had descended on the Staten Island sorting facility where workers will begin voting April 25th on whether to unionize. It's a war in there, said Amazon labor union treasurer Madeline Wesley. Amazon labor union. Company has billed itself as the everything store. Now Amazon is throwing everything at them, union buster, trying every trick in the playbook to throttle work on organizing at its Staten Island warehouses in New York City. The union voted a second warehouse, a neighboring sorting center known as LDJ5, is set to start April 25th, as the company has turned its focus there. All these union busters there that were there to bust union bust 8,000 workers at JFK 8 have walked across the street and they're in our little building of 1,600 people. A visibly shaken Madeline Wesley, who works at LDJ 5, told reporters at a press conference last week, they're really fighting us and they're really playing dirty. Wesley is the treasurer of the ALU. Amazon has reportedly blamed her for the suicide of another worker. She said management has also been condoning bigotry to drive a wedge between workers. They're spreading racist lies, sexist lies about me, trying to undermine my authority as a young woman involved with the union. Anti-union workers have been throwing homophobic slurs at us, she added. It's a war in there. Amazon paid out $4.3 million last year to union bust busters whose job is to psyops, lying in the starting facts to prevent workers from forming unions. Campaign against the union is an assault on individuals and a war on truth. The only way to bust the union is to lie, distort, manipulate, threaten, and always attack, wrote Martin J. Levitt, a former anti-union consultant, in his book Confessions of a Union Buster. Abitha Wilson is, was part of SEIU's fast food workers campaign when she worked at McDonald's. Now she works at LDJ5 and has been with the ALU since she learned about Chris Small's firing during the pandemic. Amazon has filled the warehouse with out-of-state consultants. They already know our names after only 
briefly meeting workers, she said. But we don't know who they are. The union supporters at Amazon include many, like Wilson, who has been part of a union before, such as former crossing guards with AFSCME, District Council 37, building cleaners with SEIU Local 32BJ, and hospital clerical workers with 1199 SCIU. Other places got unions. Why don't y'all want unions, said Ashley Banks, a pseudonym to protect her from company retaliation, who was a 32BJ member when she worked in commercial cleaning for Alliance Building Services. Can't believe the building across from us, JFK, got a union, said 18-year-old Ursula Tomasuk. I thought it wasn't doable till now. It doesn't make any sense that they bring people from other states and warehouses to tell us to vote no, said Memo Merlin, who was leaning towards building, voting yes. Companies brought in ultra-conservative buster, union buster Rebecca Smith, as Lauren Kaori Gurley reported in Vice. Smith wrote an anti-union propaganda book, Union Hypocrisy. She's a turncoat who trades on our Teamster background, but what she did for the union was safety training and reported her reportedly her co-workers their petition to get her fired for incompetence. One of the consultant firms advertises that it offers a team of men and women who represent bilingual, ethnic, and cultural diversity that will meet with individual employees, establishing both rapport and credibility. Notes that its service will help address situations in which the company's management and supervisors do not reflect a racial mix of the workforce. Despite Amazon's efforts, many workers are resisting the grip of fear. Kathleen Cole was involved with the union after she was compelled to attend captive audience meeting. Recall the fellow worker asking in one of those meetings, if I vote for the union, could that be held against me? Could I be fired? The union buster wouldn't answer the question. He just kept going around in circles, Cole said. So I got angry because I'm like, he's intimidating this poor guy. Then she stood up saying, no. You cannot be fired for signing a union card. It's against the law. I'm not the fighting type, but that's just wrong, he said. It's, to be honest with you, if there were fair and neutral in this hearings, I never would have gotten involved. Well, it goes on and on, um, noting at one point that Amazon was responsible last year for nearly half of all industries in the warehouse industry. The rate of injury of 6.8 per 100 workers at Amazon compared to 3.3 per 100 at other warehouses. 
They're not going to give it up because it's about power. It's not about at base. It's not even about wages and working conditions and all those things. It's about power. And those bosses want you to be at their behest. They'd love it if they could hire and fire every day and keep you struggling. Anyway, that's the popular resistance website. And uh, play a little break music here. This is the Georgie and Johnny show. George Wire is all a humming. And you know what we're doing as we live honest lives, whether we're going or eating or a coming. You got all the bugs bugged, all your liars are spying, and your rats are watching the deers. And you look so funny with your two million eyes and your homeland security. Twenty connections on my telephones, my potatoes got both eyes and ears. And at home I got my George Orwell video, it watches me and it hears. Democracy is what you're maintaining, you lie to us on TV. But while we're watched and we're hunted and spied on and lied to, Georgie, you know we ain't free. When you're gone, they'll say he knew everyone but himself. You know it's true. But you ain't relaxing as long as I can't, because Georgie, I'm watching you. She's been barking up the wrong tree. Nobody loves me but my doggy. And she says she's been barking up the wrong damn tree. She's gonna take this old bone, Charles Morgan. Whoa, she's gonna bury me. And no matter what I do, she talk all this smack at me. She says, you gotta fill up my bowl each and every night. You got to scratch them fleas away when they try to bite. You gotta take me out walking with them other dogs. So I won't feel alone And take me on down to that butcher shop 
So I can get down to the bone Whoa Nobody loves me but my doggy And she says she's barking up the wrong damn tree Lord have mercy She's gonna take this old bone Charles Morgan Whoa She's gonna bury me And she never lets up. She keeps talking her smack on me. She says, take away the Purina. I want a New York steak. You better tell me dry when I get wet so I won't have to shake. Put a mirror in my doghouse for when I want to preen. And you better chase them cats away in case I'm feeling mean because nobody loves me but my dog whoa and she says she's barking up the wrong tree what am I gonna do now she's barking up the wrong bark she's gonna take this old bone Charles Morgan she's gonna dig a hole with her sharp front paws whoa she's gonna bury me This is the only way I can tell her how I feel. tell you daddy I ain't some mangy mutt I want a diamond studded collar for when I want to strut my doghouse needs wallpaper it's looking like a dump and when I bark and wag my tail you know I'd better see you jump whoa Nobody loves me but my dog Whoa, and she says she's barking up the wrong tree Oh no She's gonna take this old bone Charles Morgan Ain't no meat left on it and you know she's gonna bury me Then she tried to finish me off I've seen some other boy dogs out there who run it hard and fast. They've been checking out my wagon tail when I've been walking past. You know, you run out of curveball, sucker. You better get yourself another pitch. And if I don't see some changes soon, you can get yourself another four-legged little bitch. Because uh, nobody loves me but my doggy. Whoa, and she says she's barking up the wrong tree. 
whole forest around trees. Wait, she talking to me? She's gonna take this old bone, Charles Morgan, down to the funky side of town where the corporate WTO gangsters dump their toxic waste, where nothing can live but broken dreams and rust and battery acid. She's gonna bury me, Lord have mercy. Whoa. Somebody help me. Kate, <clears throat> Charlie Morgan played a couple of Charlie's songs uh, for our break there. Nobody Loves Me But My Dog, and the Surveillance Blues, addressed to our government. Uh, I'm looking at the uh, UESF, that's the uh, United Teachers of San Francisco, and they're involved in a terrible mess because the district has decided to use a new computer system to pay teachers. Let's see how this goes. 2021-22 disaster. In the midst of a terribly challenging year, educators weren't aware we had to add tax expert and pay warrior to the job description. 2021-22 disaster. The issues? Pay. Payroll deductions. ENP did not pay in the J July paycheck. 13th paycheck and taxes. Payroll issues that continue to be a problem include but are not limited to benefit deductions, retirement deductions, extended hours pay, substitute bonus pay, leaves pay. SFUSD is required to and has committed to resolving issues. The best thing to do is start a ticket emailing payroll sfusd.edu and CC, ask UESF, UESF org. Educators are facing enormous tax bills and feel completely blindsided. A small number of us know how to read the pay stubs and track our income, are aware of the changes in pay and withholdings, and do so diligently. But many of us don't especially with such confusing pay stubs. We had no idea, and you, the SFUSD district manager didn't communicate clearly. Educators again investigated and uncovered the combined reasons that the tax bill this year are disastrous for many. Trump's tax law increased taxes for working people. SFUSD had a waiver for those in 2020 and not 2021. 
meaning the jump from 2019 to 2021 was big. The district's payroll system incorrectly carried out withholdings in 2021. SFUSD paid educators a 13th check that compounded the other two problems. I knew that SFUSD would pay a 13th check and did provide that information, but we did not know a 13th check would combine with a Trump tax law and SFUSD mistakes on withholdings to affect a huge number of educators. We have no information on people's tax situations. District management is responsible for communicating these issues to employees. I made a presentation To the board on April 6th, but have not sent clear communication to employees. It is worth reviewing the presentation, but we also need to demand transparent communication and accountability. This is part of our continued struggle. What can be done? We were paid additional money in 2021 and are being taxed on that rate. So no money is owed to us, even though the tax bill is really hurting many. Educators have proposed a variety of ideas. So that's on the uh, United Educators of San Francisco uh, website and it, it outlines exactly what's going on with um it's a mess I mean not only is the district changed over to a new compu computer system where teachers are responsible for reporting their hours used to be we had to fill out these big registers and put how many days, how many, what fraction of the day each kid had been there. And now the word is that, you know, you have to put in your own hours, but the district is not even paying any attention to what you're putting in. Hopefully, hopefully, this can be solved. Okay, Amazon lashes back, we saw. If you like the idea of a four-day work week, you'll love the five-hour workday. This is on In These Times, and the subtitle is Some Companies Are Implementing Shorter Workdays While Others Are Opting for Shorter Work Weeks. Increasing productivity in these times. Five-hour day. <clears throat> Transforming the nine-to-five job into nine-to-two. 
Economist John Maynard Keynes in 1930 predicted his grandchildren would grow up to work just 15 hours a week. Advances in technology and education had already led to an explosion of productivity after all. But now Americans are working more than ever. That's because what's been determining our working hours isn't collective material needs, but the pursuit of profit for the ownership class. Now let's think about that for a minute. What if we were producing, as a society, more or less what we needed and not surplus for profits? Shorter workdays tend to make people more work more efficiently. The human brain can't concentrate on a task for eight interrupted hours anyway. What would I do with all my extra time? It's up to you. What they're talking about is giving us More free time. <laughs> so in these times, check it out. These are things that need to be considered. Okay, let's see if we can get here to Kurt Flood. Jackie Robinson. I do want to talk about Robinson because... His story has been used in a lot of different ways. Anyway, here's Kurt Flood. Kurt Flood, a man who basically sacrificed a career. He was making at that time around $100,000 a year, which translates into something like, you know, 10 times that. Millions of dollars nowadays. And for a long time, player salaries had been held down by uh, unscrupulous owners who were trying to make as much money as they could off players' labor. Anyway, here's Kurt Flood. Sacrifice his career. Um... An excellent player, maybe not Hall of Fame, but close to it. One of the best ball players of his time. Participated in three World Series. More individualized than ever. We have seen players hold out until free agency, demand trades, and truly begin to take charge in where they want the rest of their respective careers to go. Part of this is due to the increasing importance and influence that free agency has. Just one offseason can shake any sports league to its core with some of the moves that are made. Not to mention, it gives us all something to talk about during the offseason. However, things were not always like this. It wasn't that long ago that in most leads, the team you were drafted by was the team you were stuck with until the owner decided they didn't want you anymore. 
It placed athletes in a situation where their contracts could be manipulated and they didn't have any control. This was until one man sacrificed his career and changed the sports industry forever. Kurt Flood was an outfielder who played most of his career with the Cardinals. He was originally signed by the Reds in 1956, but was traded to the Cardinals just one year later. In St. Louis, Flood became a star. His defensive ability was tough to match, and his offense continued to improve. He became an all-star for the first time in 1964, the same year the Cardinals went on to win the World Series. Flood and the Cards went on to win another championship in 1967 and added a World Series appearance in 1968. After the 1968 season, Flood was a little upset. He was coming off one of his best seasons and was only offered a $5,000 raise. That raise was well below the $90,000 Flood believed he was worth but Flood didn't really have a choice and returned to the Cardinals. At the time, Major League Baseball had one of the worst systems for players out of all the major sports leagues. This was due to something known as the Reserve Clause, which let's just say was a little, uh, old, basically. It came into existence around early 1879 as an unofficial rule, and when teams started to break it, the National League officially inserted the rule in December. The rule allowed teams to reserve their players before the season started, since at the time, long-term contracts didn't exist. Each contract only lasted one season. At the time, teams still knew that if they allowed players to become free agents, the salaries of players would increase immensely. But by keeping the reserve clause in place, owners didn't have to worry about their players heading to another team and could pay them as they saw fit. Wait a minute, Dawson. Since each MLB team is a separate entity, isn't it illegal for owners to collude and fix player salaries under the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890? Well, not only is it illegal, it's extremely illegal. But here's the thing. When this clear violation was brought up to the U.S. government, the U.S. government just kind of went, so what? Baseball was the only professional sport at the time being played on a national scale, and nobody wanted that to stop. So, to keep baseball booming, baseball was granted immunity from the Sherman Act and the Reserve Clause stayed in place. When Flood returned to the Cardinals in 1969, let's just say his relationship with Cardinals management was less than perfect, and things didn't get any better when Kurt started to decline at the plate. Later that season, on October 7th, the Cardinals traded Kurt Flood to the Philadelphia Phillies as a part of a seven-player trade. Flood refused to go. He had spent the last 12 years in St. Louis, and he did not want to leave, especially if he was going to a Phillies team that just lost 99 games. On Christmas Eve of 1969, Flood wrote the following letter to MLB Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. After 12 years in the major leads, I do not feel I am a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and of the several states. It is my desire to play baseball in 1970 and I am capable of playing. I have received a contract offer from the Philadelphia club, but I believe I have the right to consider offers from other clubs before making any decision. I, therefore, request that you make it known to all major league clubs my feelings in this matter and advise them of my availability for the 1970 season. Sincerely yours, Kurt Flood. Commissioner Kuhn quickly looked over the letter that Flood had sent him and immediately denied his request to become a free agent, citing the reserve clause in the process. 
Flood felt the need to stand up for not only himself, but his fellow players, and with the backing of the MLB Players Union, Kurt decided to pursue legal action. On January 16, 1970, Kurt filed a $1 million lawsuit against Major League Baseball and Commissioner Kuhn, citing violations of the United States antitrust laws. As soon as news of the lawsuit came out, Flood was portrayed as a villain, the man who was trying to ruin baseball just because he didn't want to play a game for only $90,000 a year. Flood's teammate Bob Gibson said that Kurt got four or five death threats a day. But Flood refused to back down. He decided to sit out the entire 1970 season, forfeiting his entire $100,000 salary in the process. The next year, Flood had a brief return to the majors, playing 13 games with the Washington Senators, before writing a letter to the team owner informing him that he was quitting. With the fate of his playing career still up in the air, Flood decided to still pursue the lawsuit. The case ended up making it all the way to the Supreme Court in March of 1972. While active players weren't publicly supportive of his efforts due to the fears of criticism they would face, Flood had former players including Hank Greenberg and Jackie Robinson testify on his behalf in court. Flood and his attorney argued that the reserve clause limited players to one team for life and deliberately lowered the salaries of players, and on the other side, Commissioner Kuhn and Major League Baseball argued that this clause was in place for the good of the game. The Supreme Court used stare decisis, which is when the court looks back on a past ruling when deciding a similar case. They used the 1922 case of Federal Baseball Club versus National League as the precedent and ruled 5-3 in favor of Major League Baseball. It wasn't a surprise that Flood's career was over following the lawsuit, team owners wanted nothing to do with him, and Kurt was blackballed from the league. While Kurt Flood's case will forever show as a loss in court, the impact it had on the sports world was a victory much larger than ever expected. In the years to follow, there were drastic changes on the free agency process. Just three years later in baseball, arbitrator Pete Seitz made a ruling stated that MLB players would become free agents if they played one year with their team without a contract. This ruling was essentially the end of the reserve clause, and MLB's six-year free agency system we know today was put into place one year later. The NFL and NBA saw major rule changes in the years to follow as well. In 1976, the NFLPA won a court case to eliminate the Roselle rule, and in 1987, the players went on strike pushing for free agency, which they were then granted in 1993. The NBA reached a new CBA in 1988, which finally allowed players to choose what team they wanted to go to after filling out their service time. And since then, things have really begun to take off for players. A little less than a year ago, I saw an article where Kurt Flood's children called for him to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not here to say whether he shouldn't or should be in the Hall of Fame, but I will say this. Kurt Flood was able to lay down the foundation for something that seemed like a fantasy for athletes at the time. Without him, who knows where not only baseball, but all of sports would be today. Flood bit the bullet and made a sacrifice for all of the players to come after him. He was truly a trailblazer for the rights of athletes. So whether he is mentioned when the Nets big free agent signs or not, we all know the man who made it possible. Thank you all for watching and let me know in the comments below, do you think Kurt Flood should be inducted into the Hall of Fame? If you enjoyed, be sure to drop a like on the video and subscribe to the channel. Um, Kurt Flood.
a pioneer, should he be in the Hall of Fame? Of course he should. Marvin Miller, the uh, founder, one of the pioneers of the the uh, Major League Baseball Players Association, a union guy, is in the Hall of Fame now. Flood should be in the Hall of Fame as well. Enough said. Okay, labor history in two minutes. The Grapes of Wrath. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1939. This was the day readers were first introduced to John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. The novel follows the fictional Joad family as they flee the Dust Bowl of 1930s Oklahoma. They go to California in the hopes of a better life. There, they find more workers than available jobs and struggle to make their way in the difficult system of farm migrant labor. The novel was a fictional telling of real-life experiences of more than one million people. Known as the Okies, these farmers left Oklahoma and other states during the Great Depression searching for work. The book won both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. The year after its release, John Ford directed the story into an acclaimed film. Actor Henry Fonda starred as Tom Joad. In the movie version, at the end of the film, Tom must leave his family to escape the police. Saying goodbye to his mother, he tells her not to miss him, saying, I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. Tom Joad became a powerful, lasting symbol of the poor and downtrodden fighting for a better life. Woody Guthrie recorded the ballad of Tom Joad, and Bruce Springsteen titled an album, The Ghost of Tom Joad. Tom Joad. He pulls a prayer book out of his sleeping bag. Preacher lights up a buddy and takes a drink. Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. It was opening day of a truly new baseball season. 14,000 black baseball fans had come to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, making up more than half of the crowd. They let out an exuberant cheer as Jackie Robinson, the first ball player to break the color barrier, ran onto the field. But do you know what led to that historic moment? For years, black community leaders and writers at black newspapers had led the call demanding baseball's integration. The New York Trade Union Athletic Association also joined the fight. The TUAA organized sports programs for 300,000 union members. 
1940, they launched the Committee to End Jim Crow Baseball. That July, they hosted a labor sports carnival at the New York World's Fair. The theme for the event was ending Jim Crow Baseball. Racially integrated teams played a series of baseball games. The committee collected more than 10,000 signatures to end baseball's long system of segregation. Civil rights and union leaders held pickets at baseball stadiums in New York and Chicago where they collected more than one million signatures. This grassroots community organizing brought attention to the racial barrier erected around America's pastime. Finally, their efforts paid off when the part owner and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, signed Jackie Robinson to play for the Dodgers. Robinson often faced discrimination from other teams and fans during his career. But despite this harassment, he was named Rookie of the Year in 1947, National League MVP in 1949, and was named to the All-Star team six times. And so, each year on this day, Major League Baseball celebrates Jackie Robinson Day. Players wear the number 42 in honor of Jackie Robinson. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. The day dawned unseasonably cool in Texas City, Texas, a port city 40 miles south of Houston on the Gulf of Mexico. The French ship, the SS Grand Camp, was docked to pick up a load of ammonium nitrate fertilizer. The ship had been part of the U.S. fleet during World War II, but had been provided to France as part of the effort to rebuild Europe. For five rainy days, longshoremen had loaded 2,300 tons of fertilizer onto the Grand Camp. That morning, eight men boarded the ship to finish the job. Soon, they smelled smoke. They tried to stop the flames with jugs of water and then sounded the alarm. Four fire trucks arrived, but their hoses were no match for the rapidly spreading fire. This was made even more dangerous because the ship was already carrying 16 boxes of ammunition in the hold next to the flames. The longshoremen attempted to remove the 150-pound ammunition boxes. They only had managed to offload three before the first mate ordered them to leave, fearing an explosion. Not 50 minutes later, after the alarm had sounded, his fears were realized. Debris hurled nearly 3,000 feet in the air as the blast flattened buildings on the shore. A 15-foot tidal wave flooded the entire area. The blast killed the fire chief and 27 firefighters. Hundreds of men working on the docks and nearby warehouses were also killed. The blast was so violent that an exact death toll could never be determined. Estimates of the dead ranged between five and 600. In the aftermath of the disaster, new safety procedures were implemented to regulate the transportation of ammonium nitrate. Today, a memorial made from the anchor of the SS Grand Camp marks the site. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to Labor historyin2.com like us on Facebook and follow us on the Twitters at labor history in 2 I'm Rick Smith okay those are our three uh, labor history citations this week the Texas City disaster 1947 Jackie Robinson breaking the major league color barrier and um, the movie the grapes of wrath And let's do one more about Florence Reese. Florence Reese, who wrote 
Which side are you on, boys? Which I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. There are some songs that stand at the core of the labor movement. Year after year, these songs ring out on picket lines, at labor rallies, and in union halls across the world. These songs inspire and build solidarity between workers. Undoubtedly, Which Side Are You On is one of those songs. On this day in labor history, the year was 1900. Today, we celebrate the birthday of Florence Reese, the author of Which Side Are You On's iconic labor lyrics. She was born in Tennessee, the daughter of a coal miner. During the 1930s, her husband Sam was an organizer for the United Mine Workers in Harlan County, Kentucky. In what came to be known as the Harlan County Wars, the battle for union recognition waged on for nearly a decade. Often, violent skirmishes broke out between striking miners and federal troops, and the mine owners hired guns. Legend has it that one fateful day in 1931, deputies were dispatched to kill Sam Reese. He escaped just in the nick of time. But Florence and her children were terrorized as the deputies illegally searched and ransacked their home. When the deputies left, an angry Florence ripped the calendar off the kitchen wall and on it wrote the lyrics, To Which Side Are You On? Folk singer Pete Seeger heard the song and in 1941, he recorded it with his group, The Almanac Singers. It entered into the lexicon of labor anthems. Then, in 1976, Florence appeared in the Oscar-winning documentary, Harlan County, USA. The documentary told the story of a 1970s coal strike. In it, Florence sang her song, and the lyrics provided a powerful addition to the film. Since then, many more artists have covered versions of the song, including Annie DeFranco, Natalie Merchant, and this version by the Dropkick Murphys. All you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win because we've got the gun thugs looking very thin. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? You go to Harlan County, there is no neutral there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? 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 
a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Thank you for tuning in today, and I hope you tune in next week. Right now it's time for just sit tight and wait for Scott Walker and his show. Black, black, plastic. How about Coco Taylor? Billy Bragg, did Billy Bragg ever play with Clash? Or maybe they did concerts together. Was he ever a member?
Of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code-breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government, and it's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex's The Enigma Brokers is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. 
What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> I was just leaving the theater. Convertible 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. And I started to do some thinking. really good time. Flat black glass. Looking big splits and cruising. Saturday ninety two. On the freeway. I am a Hello, Blake. Henry! Yeah, Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Has John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission a leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? 
you want it in cool leather, Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff, talk to Under. Go to skinonskins.com. That's S-K-I-N. O-N-S-K-I-N-S dot com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at skinonskins.com at 20th and Mission. Check him out at skinonskins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank needs on volunteers like you to help. Trying to think of a really good reason to get up, and the phone rang, and it was Jerry, and she said, Hey, hi, how are you? What's going on? How's your work going? Oh, fine, you know, just waking up, but it's fine. It's going okay. How's yours? A lot of work, you know. I'm trying to make some money, too. Listen, i got to get back to it. I uh, just thought I'd call to see how you are. I say, yeah, you know, we really should get together next week, you know, have lunch and talk. And then she says, yeah, I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. Listen, take care. Take it easy. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye now. And I get up, and the phone rings again, and it's a man from Cleveland, and he says, hey, hi. Hi. 